Do you ever feel like God isn't fair? Do you ever feel like life isn't fair? I tell my kids that all the time. Life isn't fair. Complain all you want. But do you ever complain because God isn't acting like you think he should? If so, you are going to relate to the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. In fact, find that in your Bibles and stand with me. And we're going to read that. By the way, I love this church. And I love this church because the people love Jesus. You love Jesus and you love his people. And I am so excited every week to come up here and, and talk about Jesus with you and to open up God's word. And you are very gracious, very gracious. Right now we're going to read Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. Lord, we thank you for your word, every word of it, every every bit of it. We thank you, Lord, for how good you are to give us your word and to be gracious unto us and to show us the glories of who you are and what you do. Thank you, Lord, that in this parable today you, you do just that. You illustrate the idea of the last being first and the first last. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, change us, Comfort us. Forgive us. Move in our hearts for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
So let's do a little bit of review, see where we've been the last month or so in Matthew. What have we seen? Well, we have seen the stunning effects of self-righteousness. What happens when we are so fixated on ourselves and trying to make ourselves right with God? We have also seen the promised rewards, the promised blessings of following Christ. And then today we're continuing in this context of self-righteousness and salvation. And what we see is the truth about sovereign grace. The potent realities of God's kindness in Christ. A picture of God's grace that covers all of our sin and gives extravagantly even beyond what is deserved. And to do this, Jesus tells a parable. And he's illustrating what, what he said already in chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. So he's illustrating how the first are last and the last first. And, and it takes us back, if you think about it, it takes us back to the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking how he could get eternal life, salvation, citizenship in heaven. And Jesus told his disciples, it's impossible to get to heaven on your own. It's impossible to get to heaven on your own efforts and your own resources. You can only get there, you can only get in by God's gracious power. All things are possible with God. Now Jesus is going to illustrate what he has already said through a parable, through a story about how in the unseen realm of his gracious and sovereign rule, there is a fair and equal basis by which we enter into heaven, by which we enter into the kingdom of God, and it's by grace. And so he uses a very simple story to illustrate this truth, this heavenly truth. Now we're back in parables. We, we've been through a lot of parables already in Matthew. Now we're, we're back in parables. I, I think we need to review a little bit. Parables. About a third of Jesus' teaching was in parables. And parables are frequently abused and mistreated and misunderstood and then misapplied. You've got to be careful when you handle parables. They're life-changingly simple stories for simple people with one main point. It's kind of like a movie. It creates this alternative universe that's going on, another world, to teach us about how to live in the one we live in. Our part in the world in which we live. What happens is when you then hear this story, you can see your life from a different perspective. And you learn through that story. Another thing to remember about parables is they illustrate, they don't teach new truth. Illustrates doctrines that are, have already been presented, illustrates deep truths about God, but doesn't introduce new doctrines, doesn't introduce new truth about God. You're not going to get out of a parable something that isn't found anywhere else in the Bible. And what we need to ask when we, when we look at a parable is what truth about God is being highlighted here? What does it teach us about God and His kingdom and our part in it? Let's look at this parable in particular. Verse 1, we, we know, we, because Jesus says it, it's about the kingdom of heaven. And He says the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, literally a landowner, 
And that, that's God. And the landowner hires laborers for his vineyard. And let me just say that if, if God is going to be compared to a landowner, this landowner better be different than any landowner that's ever lived, ever existed. And this one is. This landowner is generous beyond any normal human expectations. He's hiring workers. Now Jesus is bringing us into the world of grapes. Into the world of grapes that need gathering and vines that need pruning and harvesting. Jesus is bringing us into the dusty world of hard work. And in those days, if you owned a vineyard, it would require to keep this vineyard up, whether you were pruning or, or harvesting. You would, you would need more workers than you had, and so you would go and hire day workers, day laborers. And they would be paid on the same day because they worked day by day. It was a hand-to-mouth existence. They got paid day by day. They were the lowest class of worker often unskilled, often mistreated, often cheated out of their wages, taken advantage of. But if you were righteous, if you were upstanding, if you wanted to to trust God and to to please God, that you would follow Leviticus 19.13, which says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. Don't keep in your possession what he needs to live on. You would follow Deuteronomy 24, 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So we read that early in the morning, this landowner went out and hired laborers for his vineyard. Early in the morning would be 6 a.m. Some of you get up earlier, I know. But 6 a.m. is early to a lot of people, and this was the start of the workday. It was a 12-hour workday, and it started at 6. And he agreed with these workers for a denarius, actually a very generous wage for a whole day as a day laborer back then. That was the pay of a Roman soldier. So, of course, these first workers said, sure, we'll do that. We're going to get more than we deserve for the work that we're doing and for for our level of, of proficiency. We'll go, we'll do, we'll work. And so they did. Verse 3, we find out that this landowner, the master of the house, goes out the third hour. Third hour is 9 a.m. And he sees some people standing idle in the marketplace. The first thing we would think is they're lazy. It doesn't mean they're lazy here. It means they, they weren't hired. They're standing there in the marketplace waiting to get hired. They're day laborers. Not a lot has changed since then in some, in some settings of, of, in cities where you'll go to a certain corner and be able to hire someone for the day. But they were standing around idle because no one had come by and hired them. And so he says, you, you go out too. And whatever is right, underline that in your mind or in your Bible, right, whatever is right, I'm going to give you. Makes a promise. So they go out and they work, and then he goes out, in verse 5 says he goes out at the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So he goes out at at noon, and then he also goes out at the ninth hour at 3 p.m., the ninth hour of the workday, does the same thing. 
You go out in the vineyard too, and he's got all these workers. Then we read that he, he goes out at the 11th hour. That's a figure of speech we know. But at, the, at the last moment, one hour to go in the workday, the, the whistle's going to blow at 6. He goes out at 5, and he hires more laborers. He actually asked them, why, why have you not um, been working? Well, maybe they were the ones that were always the last picked. Maybe they were the least able, maybe the least physically able to work. I don't know. But it comes ra- about time to, to pay, verse 8, when evening came. Day of work is over. Your 12-hour shift is done. And, and, and the, the landowner, who's different than any landowner who's ever existed, says, you call the laborers. He says this to his foreman. You call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Of course, Jesus is telling the story, and he knows where he's going with this, so this is part of the story. So he goes, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one of them received a denarius. The pay of a Roman soldier for 12 hours? They were ecstatic. They were out of their minds. They couldn't believe their good fortune. Wow. Now, verse 10, when those hired first came, they're thinking to themselves. Now, think, remember, they're at the back of the line and people are getting paid and they're not getting checks, they're getting cash. Cold, hard cash, and they get this denarius. They're thinking they're going to get maybe up to 12 times more. A denarius for one hour? Well, for 12, we're going to get 12. What happens, though? They get, they get one. Contract settled, contract kept. They got one. So what do they do? Thank you very, very much, they say. No, they don't. They grumble. They take their money and they grumble at the master of the house. So here's the foreman giving out the money, and they're saying, you know what? This landowner... He's not a good man. We don't like him. He's not fair. I don't know if you know it, but Jesus once called a guy dude. There's proof right here in, in verse 13. He replied to one of them, and here's what they're complaining about, by the way. Oh, oh, we, can you just hear it? Wah, wah, wah. They're crying. Oh, we've borne the burden of the day. We've walked through... Ten feet of snow to get there. And it's hot. <laughs> friend. Friend. This is what you say when you're, when you're somewhere and there's people aren't wearing name tags and you don't know their name. Buddy. Pal. Dude. I know ladies don't do this. Hey. And, and he says, friend. And you don't... You, by the way, this is... It, it's, it's a... It's a kind way of greeting someone who's pretty much a stranger. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. His actions were lawful. His actions were right. The landowner, what he does is he corrects the complainers. And he points really to the evil in them. 
I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you. Go. I choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. My prerogative. I'm the landowner. You're not. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, that word begrudge, it literally means, is your eye evil? Because I'm generous. Is your eye, the evil eye was the jealous eye. The evil eye was the one that looked with envy. The sinful eye. He points out the evil in them. This blindedness that comes upon them spiritually because they were greedy. They should have praised the landowner for his goodness. He had extended grace to others. He had been generous. They didn't like it. So in verse 16, Jesus says, the last will be first and the first last. Reverse order, by the way, of verse 30. What that tells me is don't make a really big deal about how he worded this. There's a point here. The emphasis is not on the order of the wording. It is on the grace of God. Remember with me that a parable has one big idea. You're not supposed to slice and dice it and come up with all these other ideas. It's one main idea. The emphasis on the grace of God, which gives far beyond what is expected and what is deserved. Well, let's break down the players in this, in this drama. You've got the kingdom of God. The, the, that's the vineyard. The vineyard is the kingdom. The landowner, this is an easy one, by the way. The landowner, God the Father. Foreman, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Laborers, believers. Denarius, that's the eternal life that you receive in Christ. And the workday is a believer's lifetime of serving Jesus. So whenever you come to faith in Christ and you start on a process of following Christ and God conforming you to the image of Christ, whatever long that is, if you're the thief on the cross, it's not very long. But however long your lifetime of serving Christ is. And, and the evening, verse 8, the nighttime is eternity. What does this parable mean? What does it illustrate? It illustrates that God is both sovereign and gracious. That He gives far beyond what is deserved. It illustrates for us that everyone who comes to faith in Christ receives the same equal gracious salvation. It's the truth about sovereign grace, as the title suggests. And, and Jesus is saying, remember we're in context here, Jesus is saying those who labor for the kingdom of God should not worry about what they're going to get, just like his disciples did in, in verse 27 of chapter 19. What's in it for us? Shouldn't worry about that. You're going to get far more than you deserve. God is good. So don't worry about what you're going to receive for your efforts because God, in His sovereign grace, will give far more than you deserve. Let's talk for a moment about sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is God's sovereignty and His graciousness operating in perfect harmony, perfect balance. Think about it with me. His sovereignty, total control of all things, past, present, future. All things either being caused or or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and through his perfect timing sovereign is the king 
the grace of God. It's his unmerited favor toward those who have not earned it. We read in Ephesians 2, 8, 4, by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Our very salvation, our position in Christ is due to his grace through the faith that he gives us. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us God is, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. In Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, we read that he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he did it. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in, in the one he loves. So all that God saves were unable to save themselves or to merit his favor. But Christians now are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is found in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 so God in His sovereign grace has chosen to save those whom He has set His love upon. Romans 9. Not according to the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. And it's gracious. It's like the generous landowner that he is, is illustrating this idea with. When God acts according to His will, He is displaying His sovereign grace. But, even among believers, there are objections to sovereign grace. People will say, it's not fair. I've worked so hard for so long, and this, pers this person comes in at the 11th hour and goes scot-free? Not fair. Or, it's not right. It's not right for one person to have so much authority. We're talking God here. Only one is sovereign, God. It is right for him to have ultimate authority. Some will say, you know, it's not appropriate to pardon certain sins. Now, to counteract this full frontal attack on his grace, on his goodness, God speaks powerfully in grace. Friend, I've done you no wrong. We need to listen to his powerful words that vanquish all rivals to his throne. He reigns supreme as the sovereign king in sovereign grace, giving far more than is deserved. Now what about this sovereign grace do we do well to latch on to? Cling to, really. Titus 3.5 tells us, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Here's what we see about sovereign grace. We see that, that sovereign grace is beautifully one-sided, totally fair, and amazingly good. Sovereign grace is beautifully one-sided, totally fair, and amazingly good. His, his grace is sovereign. It's unilateral. It's, it's one-sided. It's not dependent on any outside force. He says, I can do what I want with what is my own. God in grace determines our destiny. I mentioned it already, but Romans 9, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
and his grace is fair. It is, it is just. Everyone knows it's not fair to be forgiven. Who says, by the way, there must be equal pay for equal work? God says, I'm giving you what I desire for you to have. His grace is free. It's not earned, and he is generous, and his grace is offered freely, and he is free to give whatever he wants, anytime he wants, to whomever he chooses. His grace is effective. Grace works. Grace changes. Beautifully one-sided, totally fair, amazingly good. God designed it that way to generate maximum glory for himself in all his goodness. So we need to celebrate. We need to have a party about God's grace, about His sovereign grace. Every day of our life here on earth should be a celebration of God's sovereign grace. No grumbling about, I don't like the way that's turning out. But, but celebrating God's sovereign grace. And how do you do that? Let's, um, let's think of a few ways. First way I could think of is, well, I don't know. Stop grumbling about God not being fair. You know, it's easy for us to cheapen grace or put it out of reach. The truth about sovereign grace is that it is undeservedly given. If we got what we deserve, we know where we would be for eternity. We'd be in hell. Sorry, kids. Those who say it's not fair that some aren't saved, don't understand God's grace. And, and I know that mindset trickles down into daily life. It does into mine. It does into yours. So when we are tempted, we're thinking God is unjust and God is unfair. And so then we look around and see all these sinful people around us and we think, so are they. They're worse. And so when we're tempted to hate, we let it fly. We become uncaring and insensitive to the needs or feelings or pain of the objects of our hatred. We grumble at God and it trickles down to all of our relationships. I think of Paul. Think with me about Paul for a moment. He was Saul before. He was a persecutor of the church. He was righteous to the Jews but totally lost, spiritually speaking, as it, as it relates to Christ. And he's on his way to get Christians and pull them out, drag them out of their houses and throw them in jail for believing in Christ. But God knocks him off his high horse and saves him. God chose him out. He became born again, saved... He wasn't accepted, but now he was. He hadn't believed, but now he did. And he goes, and, and we see this, by the way, in Acts chapter 9. Go with me to Acts 9. Acts chapter 9. Paul is, Paul is ecstatic about his newfound faith in the one he wanted to destroy. And Paul, who, by the way, God called a verse 15 of chapter 9, a chosen instrument of mine. Paul was a chosen instrument of God in sovereign grace. He goes to Jerusalem. 
good place to go. But before he's there, he's in Damascus, okay? So get the, get the picture. He's, he's in the ba- Damascus, and a lot of days had passed, and he's preaching Christ. And so the Jews are like, let's kill this guy. We need to kill this guy and shut him up. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day by night in order to kill him. But his followers, his disciples, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall and lowered him in a basket. Cool story, huh? Getting lowered down in a, in a basket off of a wall, escaping in the middle of the night. And he goes to Jerusalem. And, he, and he's, remember, he's running for his life. So he goes to Jerusalem to hang out with fellow believers. We'll see what happens. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Normal thing for a Christian to do. In fact, if you're a believer, you need to be attached to a group of disciples. A group of believers. We call those things churches, usually. And they were... But but what happened? They were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a Christian. You ever had that before? You're minding your own business. But you remember someone in your past and they were quite unsavory. Definitely not a believer. And you hear that they got saved. And you're thinking, "Uh uh-uh. Not them. They're faking it. Well, let's just see if this works out. They were all afraid of him and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, took him, I love this, and brought him to the apostles and then told Paul's testimony for him. He didn't say, now Paul, you get up there, you get right up in front, you tell him what happened. No, Barnabas stands up and says, people, you need to understand what God did in this guy's life. And Barnabas gave Paul's testimony. Declare to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he's preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And I love verse 28. If you ever feel left out in a church, you ever feel like Paul did when, when he first came to Jerusalem, cling to verse 28. Pray for a Barnabas and then cling to verse 28. Listen to it. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. They got it. Their hearts were changed towards him. They said, ah, he's a brother. He's a brother. God changed their minds. Something stirred in their stony hearts, and and by the grace of God, they they recognized and received their brother in Christ and and even defended his life. There were other plots against him, and right away there was another, and they saved his life. So you've been a believer for a long time and someone walks in the door of, of the church who by, which by the way is Christ's church and you can't believe it and you're thinking they go scot-free I've been here 50 years and I've bought this place they haven't paid their dues who do they think they are? You worked so hard for so long and you resent because now for you the church has become a social club not the family of God Picture this. A new baby comes into the family. You're 10 years old, and you look at that new baby and you say, you know, 
You're going to have to pay your dues. You haven't you have been here as long as I've been here. We'll just see about your place in this family. I'll let you know if you can stay. That's not what you do when a baby comes into the house. You love on the baby. You change his diaper. You, you care for him. You protect him because you are family. You're teammates, not opponents. Okay, let's look at some verses about complaining and grumbling, okay? Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter, we are so, we are big complainers. We're whiners. Let's talk about Exodus 16. Well, I'm a whiner, okay? I'm a whiner. Here we go. So, context. Moses and Aaron are talking to the people of Israel and there's been a problem in the camp. There, there, there's competition and grumbling and it's not good. Let's just put it that way. And here's what they said to the people. At evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Well, what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him what are we your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord well let's go to 1 Corinthians 10 kind of talking about the same thing verse 10 all the things that we are being warned about against uh, and not wanting to go into idolatry says don't be grumblers as some of them were and were destroyed. Philippians 2.14 Do all things without grumbling or complaining. God's basically saying, quit your belly aching, right? Everything's gravy in Christ. Everything's icing. You've got eternal life. Live as if you really had it. I don't know why, but we have this tendency to camp out in legalistic everyone has to do this or or licentious type things of, oh, I can do this if I want because I'm free in Christ. We, we, and then we grumble at God. We go to these polar opposites of grace. Paul's working in the sweet spot of grace and we're over on the edges trying to tell people what to do or get away with things. We become blind to the weeds choking our life. There's a slippery slope of self. Start thinking about me. Start thinking about what's mine. You didn't pay me enough. Instead of us and ours. Praise God that they got the same as me. Now there is one complaint that God wants to hear from us. There's only one complaint that God will really listen to. Psalm 142, 1 and 2. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him, and I tell my trouble before Him. Don't ignore the first part of those verses. I cry out to the Lord with my voice, I plead for mercy. It's because of our sin. Our complaint is, I'm in so much trouble because of my sin. Save me, Lord. Have mercy on me. It's not, hey, everyone else is doing all these things wrong. Tell your trouble before Him, the trouble you got yourself into. Because of your sin. We got to stop grumbling. And then quickly, two other things that kind of latch, it, it enables us to do these other things. The, the, the second thing is receive humbly. Receive humbly from God's hand. 
You've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat, a lot like the older brother. And grumbling isn't humble, you know that. When your eye is evil because God is generous, isn't humble. We can't receive humbly when we're blinded by self-centeredness. When we doubt the justice and fairness of God. And by the way, when we doubt the justice and fairness of God, it's always because our view of who God is and what justice and fairness is, is, is twisted. It's not because God has done anything wrong. And you do grumble on and you will fall into the trap of legalism. You'll try to earn points with God and control other people and complain about what they got or even what gifting they might have received. Or that trap of licentiousness, which uses freedom as a covering for evil, seeks to get away with whatever it can. (laughs) Take what you've been given and go. Receive humbly from God. Everything is a gift of God's grace. If if we could see everything as a gift from God's grace, our, our perspective would be so much clearer. We would be so less negative. We'd be, we would see even hardship as a good thing. James 1, you know, the, the, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And, and then you read later in the chapter, well, uh, every good and perfect gift is from God. How about the trial? That's the perfect gift from God to bring into our life something we are lacking. To teach us in a painful way something that we're lacking because God in His grace gives what is needed. See, grace is a magnanimous gift. It, it's totally unexpected. It's, it's, you know you don't deserve it. It's like, what if someone gave you a billion-dollar sack of cash on your front porch and, and there was a note attached to it? Use wisely. Handle carefully because I love you. You get catapulted into uh, the grateful zone when that happens. That's the third thing. You've got to live gratefully. The last thing, you've got to live gratefully think about it. God initiates and accomplishes salvation. It's impossible with man. It's possible with God. It's like a rescue team snatching helpless rafters out of the rapids that are hurtling them over Niagara Falls or towards Niagara Falls. God rescues helpless men and women and boys and girls out of the stream of humanity that is cascading into hell. Sorry, kids. It is a humbling truth that ought to that ought to result in immense gratitude in our hearts to God. Why did God bestow His sovereign grace on you? Not because we deserve it, but but to demonstrate the riches of His glory. The only proper response is this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, please equate our living into gratitude, not grumbling. Lord God, please make us yielded and available and ready and willing for you to use. Make us channels of your grace, useful to you, ready for every good work. We know, Lord, that your church is filled with gifted and humble people that are available and just dreaming of ways to build up the body of Christ. I I thank you for this church that has so many who are just waiting on you for marching orders to worship you by building up believers and reaching others for Christ side by side with the body of Christ. And Lord, that encourages our hearts. But Lord, we also know that we grumble. 
And, and we know that the beauty of the cross is that your grace gets us right where we are so that we do say all we have is you, Lord. You're our only hope. And yes, our life is not clean, but you are good. And your church is our family, and we just want to trust you and live and be used by you for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.